This is Four People with Bishop Rob Wright. Welcome to Four People with Bishop Rob Wright. I'm your host, Melissa Rao, and in this episode, we have special guest Jim Wallace with us. Jim is the editor of Sojourners Magazine and host of Soul of the Nation. Welcome, Jim. Great to be here with my friend. <laughs> yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open with kind of a big grounding statement and a question. Bishop, our country in many ways has been operating out of fear and scarcity. Can you share how this has led to scapegoating and violence? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I think that what seems to be part of the, the human pattern, uh, the age-old human pattern is, is that uh, we, we need, uh, we're people of flesh, and so we need something in the flesh to sort of blame. We need someone, uh, we need an other uh, we need a boogeyman. Uh, we need we need someone that we can sort of pin uh, the worst things. We need someone, uh, you know, a canvas on which to, to externalize, to paint uh, all of our our, our own uh, darkness. And so it it doesn't surprise me that in the in the face of um, you know the disorientation, the alienation, the loss that people are experiencing, the loneliness that people are experiencing right now, there's a resurgence of xenophobia, there's a, a resurgence of homophobia, and certainly our old go-to uh, in this country, uh, racism. So it's a, it's a tragic uh, part, one, one tragic part of, of how we are human that uh, continually needs medicine, you know, and I think the medicine of the gospel. So, uh, Jim, what would you add to that? Well, it's a time of, of fear and hate and violence. So we have to understand how one leads to the other. It's a progression. So when we're seeing a national politics of, of hate, that, that it's, the fear is underneath it all. So the politics of fear does lead to hate of the other, as you just said, and then it leads to violence. And so we're seeing this now. It's always been very uh, covert. It's always covert. Now it's very overt. It's out there. It's very clear. And so it really is a moment when we're either going to reclaim Jesus, as you were just saying, the gospel, or we're going to fall into this very, very ugly, historical, brutal pattern of fear leading to hate, leading to violence. That's where we are right now. Hmm. Thank you for that. Well, and let's talk about violence a little bit. I feel like everybody has an opinion. Uh, they're either for or they're against. There doesn't seem to be much middle ground or listening. And, and it reminds me of the violence bit about rage. You know, people are angry and they're angry for different reasons. And so, Bishop, I'm wondering if you can talk about what rage is and where it has a part in all of this, getting us, breaking us out of the paradigm that we're currently in. Yeah, I, I'm concerned about rage. And, and uh, I, I think that, um, you know, as Jim has said, I mean, I think at the, at the heart of even rage is, is fear. Right. And so when I when I look at the television and I see expressions of rage uh, in, uh, um, you know, in a lot of sort of uh, faces, I see I see rage of being dislocated. I feel the uh, people sort of defaulting to rage as a response to loss, um, as, as a as a response to uh, powerlessness. I see uh, uh, people defaulting to rage, choosing rage because uh, the, the structure and the systems have failed them. Um, you know, so I, I see I see rage as as, as um, 
an understandable but nevertheless tragic uh, decision. Um, and of course, the counter to that is just sort of this uh, this immobilized uh, fear uh, that shows up uh, as a guilt, shame, uh, and um, self-flagellation, which again doesn't create any life. And so, and so, what we're, we're and then of course, you know, these things get internalized as well. And so, you know, I'm 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 hoping that you know when Jesus offers us a partnership, uh, when Jesus says, "Join me and, and exert leadership." I'm hoping that we'll be able to channel energy in that direction because I think that's the only thing that's going to save us. And historically, that's the only thing that's ever saved us is people who could love big enough and deep enough to take the, sh- the you know, sort of the sharp shards of things and make something beautiful out of it. That That's the only hope we've ever had. Thank you. Well, let's talk about that. You, you kind of just brushed on internalized oppression, and I'm not sure that many of our listeners may know what internalized oppression is. Can you share a little bit about what that is about and how it's rooted in guilt and shame? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I'll be happy to. I, I, I wonder before I go in on that, I, I wonder, Jim, what are your thoughts on that? Because we know that white supremacy is a system. We know it's in the air and it's in the water. It's in everything. I, I wonder what's been your sense of, of how people have internalized oppression on the, on, the, on the victim end of white supremacy. Well, I think uh, to to respond to what you were just saying about rage, there is an anger. Uh, We see in the Bible anger at injustice. Uh, The prophets aren't just offering an opinion. They're angry about injustice. And the, the, the new thing here is I see, like I've never seen before in my lifetime, a lot of white people angry at the injustice. A new generation of white people in the streets now I've never seen so many white people involved and talking about uh, America's original sin. Uh, there's something happening in the country where finally, 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 white people, particularly young white people, are angry about this system they're just coming to see and understand for the first time. And so that anger is an important thing. What it leads to is what you're trying to raise, which I agree. What does that lead to? What kind of energy for transformation does that lead to? It means not accepting uh, anything but but the truth and dealing with the truth. Uh, truth has to come before reconciliation. You've got to tell the truth. And I think there's a chance here. Bishop, you know the difference between these two words uh, Kairos and Kronos. Kronos is just normal time passing hour by hour. Kairos is a moment when things come together, almost spiritually. There's this moment where all of a sudden we see things and understand things like we didn't before. This could be a Kairos time. And part of that is being angry at these systems that we have allowed and tolerated for so long. And, and Black people have been angry but white people and white Christians being angry at the systematic racism in our policing, in our law enforcement, in so many of our underlying systems, I'm seeing white people, white young, white, white Christians see that and feel that. And our little church went for a march the other day crying about that, <laughs> praying about that. Uh, I've never quite seen that before in so many white people. And to me, this is a Kairos moment, or could be, if that if that anger leads to real change, not just rage, but real change. 
No, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and, and in fact, our congressman here in Georgia has said, you know, he's particularly heartened in ways he hadn't been heartened in a long time to see, especially white, uh, white youngsters and, uh, and others uh, uh, marching. And he just he hopes that they'll be able to sustain that. And so I, I think it is out of a righteous indignation, right, and anger. And of course, I, I like, you know, the, the, the distinction between rage and anger is, you know, if you go back to the roots of anger, right, it's actually not rage. It's something much more compassion oriented. It's, it comes from a Norse word, N-O-R-S-E, the word anger, which means I feel your dignity violation so acutely, so viscerally that I have to walk alongside of you until we find remedy. Right. And so this is what the prophets were saying. Right. And, and, and so but it's constructive is what I love about it. It's constructive. Right. Um, but, you know, Melissa, I, you, you were talking about internalized oppression. I, I think that, um, you know, systems like white supremacy de- depend on uh, cooperation, so, uh, you know, subtle uh, and, and not so subtle, conscious and, and, and unconscious. And, and, you know, when I have conversations with, with fellow African-Americans, people of color, you know, uh, people sort of wonder, well, what's what's the what's the what's the African-American role in that in, in this sort of national dance that we've been doing now for 401 years? And, and, you know, it came it came very clear to me just the other day. I was out running with my my teenage son. Actually, I was walking. He was doing the running. Uh, and uh, he's tall now. He's, his, his physicality is blossoming. He's been in the weight room. He's getting strong. He's out running. And we were running in a neighborhood by a river, which is predominantly white. And uh, and, uh, you know, he, he ran ahead and did a couple of miles and then found me still still walking very slowly. And he was recounting to me that he noticed the glare of lots of people as a, as a young, tall, muscular African-American. And so, and this was fascinating to me, without any invitation, without any class, without any reading a book, he decided immediately in that moment uh, that he needed to smile and say hello so as to make, uh, you know, white, white people who were along the river with us feel safe. And, and I, I think that this is this is one of the things we've got to investigate uh, also is, is that um, uh, people of color exert an awful lot of energy in making other people feel safe. It's part of the way we dance together in America, in, in corporations, in the church. Uh, th- there's all this sort of passive and active and tacit uh, sort of things going on, uh, negotiation going on. And I think we've got to investigate it. But I was astounded how, how, how my young son already had been indoctrinated into this, this usage of energy uh, to, to make people feel safe. And so when we talk about uh, racism, white supremacy being in the air, there's just a very small example of, of how without any instruction, without a proctor, uh, we, we, we know somehow that we've got to make one group of people feel safe. We've got to sort of try to mitigate our physicality. We've got to try to mitigate um, uh, a perception, uh, uh, that is, that is real. And so I, I think we've got to just, I, I think what we've got to realize, I, I think we can go no further until we do what, exactly what Jim says. We've got to acknowledge this. We've got to acknowledge that this is baked into who we are. And that's not the same as condemning this nation. I think to acknowledge it is not condemning. I think acknowledging it actually puts us on a trajectory towards hope and change. And so I think when, when people default to sort of defensiveness, right, and fragility in, in the face of this, I, I think they're missing the mark here. I think there's a constructive option here if we acknowledge and then sort of move to refinement and change. Well, the small example uh, that you just gave of your son 
is is a universal example. This is every black parent in the country, when they saw George Floyd uh, with his white knee on his neck, every black parent I know saw their sons and daughters under that knee, saw themselves under that knee. And, and white parents just didn't see that or even think of that. You talked about your boy. My boys are both also like muscular athletes and they're out running and doing all this. And, and my boys uh, uh, have black teammates. Uh, they're varsity Bay baseball players. And they know that's the everyday experience of their teammates. And it makes them angry. And so a new generation now is angry. And Rayshard Brooks is now a, a national uh, figure. <laughs> and, and, and when people saw him running away and shot in the back, um, uh, if you had taken a poll before, you'd have had a lot of people saying, well, why was he running and what was that taser about? Now, if you took a poll, I think most people would understand, even a lot of white people, that he was shot in the back because of the color of his skin. If it would have been one of my boys, Lou Luker Jack, running away, he never would have been shot and killed. And that's a reality now that people understand. And that, if that poll was taken today, I think much many more people would understand that. You know, Trayvon Martin was was killed. And when, when, when that happened, I wrote about how my son Luke, same age, everything, would never have been stalked and shot and killed. And more people in this country now are understanding that Rayshard would not have been killed, period, if he was white. So that's, I think, the change that may be upon us now. And what we do with that becomes really important. Jim, I agree with you. I think there's a number of, uh, I think there's finally um, a surge of people paying attention and talking about it. Yet still, as a country, there's a number of folks or organizations who will say, don't rock the boat. And uh, Bishop, I you have said in the past, and I love it, uh, it's a great quote, silence is malpractice. Can you kind of share a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, sure. I mean, as Jim is, is painted, I mean, you know, um, what we say is we respect the dignity of every human being. What we say in our church is that we're going to strive towards justice, right? And so I, I think that I don't know where silence, uh, I don't know where silence is, is in that equation. Right. I think it's it's, um, you know, what I always tell people when they want to confess to me that they have privilege, I said, well, use it. Right. Use your privilege. Use your voice. So, I mean, I don't know how silence factors into the equation when, when my neighbor is is being violently uh, strangled to death under someone's knee. I don't know what my what my you know, how does my silence glorify God? It's it's striking to me that people somehow see that, uh, you know, Christians sort of finding their voice in these matters as, as, as somehow rabble rousing, as, as somehow agitating for, for chaos um, and, and not seeing that as a sort of a fidelity to Jesus. Um, it, it just goes to show you that uh, our Christian formation has, you know, gaping holes in it. And this is, again, this is not at base, not a black or brown issue. At base, this is an, a human dignity issue. At base, this is about, um, you know, living the words we pray. And so what I would hope, in, in fact, what I, what I would go so far as to say is, is that um, silence is malpractice is not nearly strong enough, right? Silence uh, in, in the face of what we're facing right now at this, Kronos mo at this Kairos moment, at, at this sort of 
tipping point moment is also a lack of fidelity to God. Uh, and, you know, yeah, go ahead. Silence is approval. Silence yeah. is approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my, my church, Boulder Cultural Church, all, full of millennials. I'm the oldest guy. Enjoy. Uh, but we went for a march, and I and these kids are out there. And, of course, I was led by the by the black Christians in the church. But all these white kids are out there. And one of them is carrying a sign with a 1 Corinthians text. <laughs> Most people have no idea. What, well, what that kid, white kid, is quoting there is when it says, if one part of the body suffers... We all suffer, right? Well, the black body of Christ is suffering every day. Every black Christian parent worries about their kid walking out the door in the morning to go for a run or anything else. And when white churches don't even acknowledge that pain or that suffering, we're this is a Corinthians issue. This is a body of Christ issue. Here's this white kid carrying this first Corinthian, this Corinthian sign in a march uh, with a Black Lives Matter sign next to it. So this is this is a moment when these are not political issues. They are these these are faith issues. They are theological issues here, and that's what makes it possible. But we have to pursue this and not be happy. The internal stuff for white folks is, if you feel uh, guilty and ashamed, that's enough. Uh, repentance does not mean, in our tradition, guilt and shame. It means turning around. The word means turning around and going in a whole different direction, which means the criminal justice system has to be turned around, not just a few bad apples. The whole culture and system has to be turned around. And so we are going to be one nation, all of us, under the law, protected, protected. And that's not true right now. So how do we change that? And how do we understand silence is approval of the way things are now, which Christians simply cannot any longer do. Wow. I thank you for that. I, I was sitting here thinking of being sick, you know, if you don't feel this, if you don't feel that this is a problem or aren't willing or able to do something about it, because obviously the whole body is indeed sick, um, then perhaps we need to check. We need a, we need a spot check. We need to go to the doctor. (laughs) We need to figure something out, uh, because you're spot on. I'm curious then, what do we do? What do we do moving forward? What is our work to do? Bishop? Yeah, I, uh, I'm happy to get in because I want, I want the Jim to have the last word on this. I, I, I think, you know, I'm first and foremost a, the chief pastor of, of a diocese of Middle and North Georgia. And so I guess I, I start there. I think one of the first things we've got to do is find our voices. We've got to increase our appetite for the truth. We've got to increase our appetite for the truth. And we've got to understand that we're not condemned by what we have been, but we are going to be judged for what we don't do, right? And so I, I think we've got, to, we've got to pay attention to this. And so my encouragement, first and foremost, is to the clergy of the diocese and, and, and really to the clergy of the church the globe over. And that is to really interrogate our own allegiance. You know, have we made Jesus some icon of the status quo or will we allow Jesus to be the Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of the Bible? And if we let Jesus be the Jesus of Nazareth, I think we will have our marching orders. I think if we get close to him, my, my, one of the best things I've ever heard on this is I, I double dog dare you to read the gospel slow. Read it slow. Read it slow and watch Jesus walk around and value neighbor. And then we can ask ourselves, myself included, maybe myself especially, 
you know, how do I, uh, how have I shown up as a Christian today? How am I showing up when a, ma- a member of the, the body is, is in a whole? I love this notion in, in, in the Gospels where Jesus uh, tells, the, uh, tells the clergy, you know, and tells the faithful, you know, if your son or your oxen fell in a well, even on a Sabbath day, wouldn't you break the rules and go and get that person out of the hole? And so I, I, I think that we've got to reclaim a vision of church that looks like that. Uh, where we are running into holes to lift people up uh, and to get them out of the holes that in some ways we've dug for them. So I, I would start there. Uh, and, and of course, if we can get this vision going on in our churches, we hope that, that that'll become a communicative disease and that we'll sort of uh, begin to then spread this notion of God and neighbor, neighbor and God being synonym. Uh, and then we can begin to affect and effect uh, a policy. Uh, Jim, what do you add? Well, I heard about when you're sick, sick, you go to the doctor. I just heard that a few moments ago. The doctor's Jesus here. Our doctor is Jesus here. And I get so weary of white people saying, well, wait a minute. I'm not a racist. This is our individualism. This is a system. This is a culture that we were all born and bred in. And, and is it true that every white person is responsible for everything that happens to every black person? Of course not. But if you benefit from a system, if you benefit from oppression, you are responsible for changing it. If we benefit from it and see it as a system, then we're responsible for changing it. So go to the doctor, see what Jesus says. I love the way the bishop talks about reading the Gospels slowly, slowly read the Gospels. And this is not getting in in the culture. My sons, as I said, are baseball players. So the coach, high school baseball coach, had a team meeting, a Zoom call the other night. I thought it was going to be about when we reopened for baseball in the summer. No, he, he, he turned to a black coach who is known to a lot of our kids who told his story about when he was in college in New York, just about to be drafted his senior year of college, and, and, and he got pulled over, he and four other black athletes by the police, for something they had nothing to do with. In a bar, there was a fight, and they got pulled over. They weren't even in the bar and arrested. And he was he kicked off his baseball team and never got drafted. And he shared the story in a wonderfully uh, compassionate way with all these baseball players, these kids. And this kid didn't get a chance to be drafted because he got pulled over because he was black. And, and then, uh, then I know this coach. I know that story. None of them had heard this story. It's in the New York Times. They hadn't heard the story. So so I said to the kids in the call, I said, you know, guys, every generation has to decide what is no longer acceptable or tolerable or that can't be changed. Your generation has a chance. If you didn't like what happened to Jared, if you think that was wrong, then you change it. If you change it, it'll change. But until you decide to change it, it won't change. So who's going to decide that this system the system, this, this systemic racism is wrong. And because we're Christians, we're going to change it. That's what we have to decide. Well, Bishop, thank you, Jim. Uh, Bishop, do you have any final thoughts for us? Uh, you know, I, as, uh, as Jim was talking, and I'm so glad that you uh, were able to join us, Jim. I, I thank you so much for your contribution. I'm just reminded of that wonderful quote uh, by Dr. King that said that uh, as Christians, we are not just to be uh, the thermometer for what's going on. We are to actually be the thermostat. Uh, we are to be the difference makers. And so I, I like Jim's call 
that, you know, now that we know Jesus in some ways, now that we've found love, what are we going to do with it? Right. And I think that Jesus is inviting us on his friend making campaign. And that friend making campaign means the dignity of every human being. And it, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We, we don't we shouldn't forget that it's a cross and not an executive key. But a, uh, but to reclaim that gives us energy and gives us hope and gives us purpose. And I think that's exactly what the doctor ordered. Right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Four People with Bishop Rob Wright. You can keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Bishop Rob Wright. Please subscribe, leave a review, and we'll be back with you next week.